Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on the nature of beauty. Our topic for the next hour is the relationship between art and science and the role played by the concept of beauty in both art and science. We'll be thinking about what science can do for art. It's a familiar idea that art draws inspiration from the natural world. But what about the more abstract side of science? What about maths, physics, chemistry? Can these also be inspiration for art? And what about the practice of science? What about laboratory practices and processes? And we'll be thinking too about what art can do for science. Scientists will often talk about a theory or experiment as being beautiful. What does that mean? What counts as beautiful in science? How can it be that one theory can be more beautiful than another when at the end of the day they're just maths? And what's the significance of beauty in science? If one theory is more beautiful than another, is that really a reason to prefer it or is it just a loose way of talking? Is beauty a guide to truth? Do we have any reason to expect the truth about the world? to be beautiful. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Adrian Holm from the University of the Arts London and Malena Ivanova from the University of Cambridge will be bringing us insight on these questions. And we're interested to hear your questions as well. You can post them at any time in the Q&A box in this webinar and we'll mix them in as we go along. So let's start with you, Adrian. I mean, you're, you're an artist. What are your favorite examples of science inspiring art yes thank you jonathan i mean i, I think as you say we're, we're we're all very familiar with the way that nature uh, inspires inspires art and uh one of the things i do is i teach on a, an illustration course as well as on the ma art and science at, uh, at central st martin's um, but there is also this kind of rather more direct connection when we're talking about art and science. And um, there are some works where science is featured directly or where science has inspired directly uh, works of art. I mean, perhaps, um, I mean, Joseph Wright of Derby's uh, famous yeah. painting, which is a very familiar. Up. Yes, we have a few, four, yeah. a few artworks to, to show you in the webinar that we'll describe for those listening to the podcast. But yeah, Joseph Wright of Derby, one of my all time favorite paintings, I think. What is it, Adrian, that is that painting of the, uh, the, the, the sort of bell jar, isn't it? Can you tell it's, us what's going on in that painting? Indeed, well, there's quite a lot going on. So it's the it's slide number four, that's it, yeah. Um, so in this slide, you see um, a darkened room using the um, chiaroscuro technique uh, attributed to people like earlier painters like Caravaggio. This was painted by Joseph Wright in 1768. So in a darkened room, there are a group of people um, situated around what is a kind of scientific experiment. And it's actually a, a, it's a demonstration, a rather theatrical demonstration of a scientific experiment. And it's um, that the light is all from the center, from behind the glass vessel as a candle, mm. and it lights the people's faces in this half light in a very, very dramatic way. And then right at the center, there is, um, a figure who is almost like a kind of mad scientist, this kind of really um, long-haired and wild-looking man who is holding, um, who is holding like a, a, a bell jar from at the top of the painting, from which air is being pumped, and a bird is in the jar, uh, and the air has been pumped out and this bird is fluttering or dying, we don't quite know. This is a fearful painting in a way, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a terrifying it's dark. painting. The bird is not got long to live, really. It's capturing this bird more or less at the, the point of death. Yes, indeed. And we don't know really whether, I mean, he's looking to us, the main, the main figure, the demonstrator, the scientist is, is looking, he's the only person that catches our eye in the painting. Um, and he is 
almost like I, I think saying, you know, it, it's a challenge to us. It's up to us. Do we want the bird to die? Is he going to let in the air, perhaps, to let the, the air back in so the bird may revive? Um, so it's a terrible scientific experiment. Uh, and it's a demonstration of the, the, the power of science, isn't it? Yeah. And the, the, the fearsome power of science. And the fearsome, yes. It's it, it, a it moral is, question, I suppose, isn't it? About the morality of science. Very much, very much. And, and the sense in which, um, you know, the, the sense in which science will, will often destroy the, the very subjects that it's um, investigating or destroy the objects that it's investigating, it considers them as objects. Um, so there's a kind of frightening portent, really, of, of things to come, if you like, in this painting, which is kind of almost in, in the era of romanticism. It's just before the romantics, but it's certainly got a romantic feeling. It's a depiction, in a way, of the of the mastery of nature, isn't it, rather yes. than of nature itself. Nature brought into the lab. Yeah, suppose. Yeah. And 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 the and the bird who is fluttering pitifully in in this uh, evacuated jar with no air, um, is kind of in this is the focus of uh, of the experiment and the focus of our attention and the focus of of certain people in the room as well. There's a little girl at the bottom who is looking up concerned and, and worried perhaps and one girl one girl who won't look at it you know who's hiding her head because it's so terrible but I mean in a sense uh, the, the way science proceeded after that the the kind of um, the victims if you like of, of the scientific experiments became really kind of marginalized and uh, and uh, not you know not really worth depicting perhaps you know mm, they get shut out of the picture altogether I mean Melena should we bring you in on this I mean as a philosopher of science what do you think we can learn from a painting like this about the art-science relationship? I think one of the interesting things that we learn from specifically this period of time is that art and science, in a sense, are both public activities. So we have this understanding the experiment is not just for the scientist that is performing it. It actually has an audience. And this is really interesting, going back to the origin of the experimental practice, is that oftentimes the experiments are including audiences and the experimenters at the time, I'm thinking about the Royal Society, 16th, 17th century, um, oftentimes are not thinking only about performing the experiment with a particular aim to confirm a theory or to see what happens under certain conditions, but they are thinking about the audience reactions. Uh, I'm thinking about Joseph Friese, for instance, who is talking about electric um, experimentation and um, experiments that are revealing electric phenomena. And he will oftentimes in his books talk, talk about, you know, the awe-inspiring experiment, the experiment that made the audience uh, have mm. aesthetic experience and i think that's really interesting and this picture depicts this very really nicely that the experiment itself is supposed to inspire awe in the viewers and then joseph wright is in a way trying to convey that sense of awe to us mm -hmm. it is and, and actually there's a, and i think it's very interesting what what you're saying elena about the, the sort of public nature of it you know and and then it, it becomes more public through being a painting. And actually, when, when you look at this, uh, the student was pointed out to me, we're looking at a table and there's a space for us at the table. And so we can walk into it and sit down and partake of this, uh, this, yeah. this event. This we become like, like the children, don't we? We're, we're yeah. the other child. Yeah, that's right. Looking up in, in a mix yeah. of fascination yeah. and horror. I mean, it's, I, I think maybe it's worth observing that, that there are other aspects. I don't know if you gave the title. It's called An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump. And um, th there are other aspects to this, of other layers of iconography here. And the, the bird is reminiscent of the, the paraclete, of the, of the white bird representing the, the, the Holy Spirit, which you get in religious painting. And it's actually situated exactly where you would expect to find that in religious painting. So there's a kind of, there's also a sense in which the air maybe represents the spirit, um, which is being pumped out of, of, the, of, the, of the jar. Um, and, and, the, and there's also further, I believe, there's a further alchemical reading of this, which is um, the moon is featured over on the right-hand side through, through a window in typical Joseph Wright of Derby style. And the moon represents, in alchemy, represents one of the sort of fundamental polarities of, of lunar mercury. And the other polarity is, is, uh, is uh, the sun and um, is, is sulfurous. 
the sun. So there's a kind of alchemical reading, and the, the moon and the sun kind of will collaborate in in sort of um, in in, um, in generating the uh, the philosopher's stone, and generating change, um, driving change. So there's an, there's another alchemical layer to it, and a religious layer in, in terms of the iconography. It's depicting science as a source of magic, almost, isn't it? That the, the scientist looks rather like a magician, but yeah, also, so, as you're saying, with a link to alchemy. He very much does. I mean, you might say it, it's a painting which kind of secularizes the, those forces of those alchemical views of the world or and the religious views of the world. Or you might say it's a painting about science which alludes to and draws upon those mm. other traditions. So this is a fantastic example of how the processes of science and the what goes on inside a lab can be a source of inspiration for art. Should we, should we think a bit about how sort of theory can be an inspiration for art and, and the sort of abstract side of science? Do you want to give us some examples of that, Adrian? Well, I suppose the, the, the one I was thinking about this, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the one that really comes to mind is, is mathematics and geometry. And, um, and for those who are watching this, um, the, the next slide and the one after, um, so, so slide number five going forward. Yeah. I mean, this is, I've, I've just picked this one as a, I've always wanted to go to Isfahan and see the, uh, see the Islamic uh, tiles on, on the mosques in Isfahan. But I mean, the extraordinary complexity of this design here of the, the Shah Mosque at Isfahan, which was the ancient capital of, uh, of Iran. So it's looking up at a ceiling, isn't it? A dome. Looking up at a ceiling, yes, indeed, and you can see that there are. It's all covered in in tiles with the most intricate uh, patterning, uh, and in fact, there are shapes as well within this. So there's a uh, there's an extraordinary. I'm not enough of a mathematician to explain the mathematics behind it, but there's a considerable amount of mathematics uh, lying behind this uh, in in a Muslim culture, which was uh, where you know the representation of, of people, and I think sometimes even animals, was was prohibited. So mathematics so, has this special significance for Islamic art then because of the way that more more literal, less abstract depictions of nature were not allowed. Yes, and I, and I, and I, I think, um, I mean, certainly in, in the West, in Western art, I mean, geometry was also aligned with, um, with, with reason and God seen as a God of, of reason. Um, so, in a sense, geometry had a divine aspect that we can trace back to the Greeks as well with people like Pythagoras. Milena, do you want to come in on, on, on the example of the Shah Mosque? Um, well, I, when I was looking at this, I was just thinking about how fundamental geometry was in the works of ancient Egyptians and uh, ancient Greeks, sculptors, artists. Um, and how, how much work they actually had to do to um, think about mathematical laws, geometrical laws, uh, proportion, symmetry, in order to create innovative work. And I was thinking especially about, you know, these steps that Greek statues made um, in the times when, you know, we go from a very stable, uh, you know, male figure to actually making a step, how much work they are, uh, they kind of, sculptors had to do to understand um, the laws mm. of physics, but also but geometry. Sculptors would have to be mathematicians, in effect. Exactly, and actually some of them were uh, very much involved in working mathematics, right? So Polyclitus, for instance, I'm thinking about, and he, he worked very much intensely in the contemporary geometry uh, and even wrote, we don't have uh, any, I think, remaining evidence of this, but, you know, it's so sad that he even wrote like a canon of how you have to do proportion to represent in the most ideal way, uh, you know, the human body. So I think it's really interesting how there's always been a correlation between artistry and, you know, to do art well, you have to do a little bit of uh, science. You have to understand a little bit about uh, geometrical laws, mathematics, and it's not um, always a matter of inspiration, but sometimes it's actually quite uh, instrumental for achieving the goal that you have as an artist. Yeah, it's great to, to raise that question, I think, of whether the relationship is always one of inspiration, because we talk about science inspiring art, but sometimes the connections seem to be a lot more intimate than that. 
How do you see the relationship, Adrian? The relationship between... Well, is it the case that the science is inspiring the art? Sometimes it is, I suppose. Sometimes that is exactly what's going on, and perhaps Joseph Wright is an example of that. But that's not always what's going on. No, I, I think the relationship is more complex and more subtle. I mean, I, I think, the, I think the, the issue is that science and art were not always uh, as separate as, as we might conceive mm. of them today. Um, I mean, in, you know, there's a lot of evidence that in Leonardo's day, and we think of Leonardo as, as an artist and a scientist, and he's, that becomes that archetypal kind of choice of mm. something to exemplify science and art. But actually, um, there was not a great conceptual difference really between science and art in 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 that in the time of Leonardo. Um, the, the the science was science and art were, were very much about uh, knowledge and skill. You know, so if art was kind of like about skill and, and science was about knowledge, you know, you bring together knowledge and skill quite in quite a logical way. There wasn't that great conceptual divide. Uh, between the two and, and Leonardo and there, there also weren't those disciplinary divisions you know and Leonardo was able to operate very much as a scientist and, a, and an early empiricist in the in the kind of later western tradition European tradition um, but but also as an artist and I think I think for Le for someone like Leonardo the, this was all part of the same enterprise uh, as kind of investigating and representing nature. There's a question from the from the audience about fractals that I think is quite interesting that that ceiling of the Shah mosque there yeah. looks looks a bit like a fractal though I'm not quite sure if it is or not but that seems like a great example of a pattern that we see in nature that's then also become this motif throughout the history of art as well absolutely and, and I mean I, I I I'm no I'm no great mathematician but I mean they do look very much like fractal patterns it'd be interesting to have a mathematician give us a view on that actually but um, certainly, I mean, there's, I mean, pattern is something that runs so sort of deep into, into who and what we are, <laughs> isn't it, you know, and uh, as kind of creatures that, uh, that discern and recognise patterns as well as, as well as reproduce them uh, for various reasons, including for pure pleasure. So would you like to give us one more example of um, a work of art that you think illustrates this art-science dynamic? We've seen how it's not always one of inspiration but sometimes it's about you know, you're depicting abstract patterns for which you actually have to learn the maths yourself and, and, and an artist has to be a mathematician mm. and sometimes it's about trying to I suppose analyze the changes that science is bringing to the world you can think of Joseph <laughs> Wright of Darby in, in that way is there another example that you think further complicates that relationship? Well, I think one example that is particularly interesting, I think, is slide number eight, which is Olafur Liasson. And um, this is a new, uh, relatively new piece of work, isn't it? Do you want to? Yes. Yeah, so this is. There us? are various incarnations of this. This was uh, from. It was originally produced in two thousand and two, and then this is from two thousand and four. And what we see here on the slide is is a large. Uh, it's a kind of gallery space and there's a there's a circular space built into this and the whole space is is bathed in in color and the title it's is called 300, 300 yeah 360 degree room for all colors room for all colors yes so what you have here are slowly changing um slowly changing colors and and the, the person enters this space and is kind of bathed and surrounded by the colors. so in a sense it's quite a sort of disorientating space i think but um as as you, um, as the colours shift, um, it is said, and I, I, I haven't experienced this directly, and I'd really love to, but uh, it's said that, the, that there are more colours visible than actually are physically produced uh, by the lights, because the other colours are, are created by our sort of perceptual system. They're kind of created by the brain, if you like. Mm. Um, so, so Eliasson is, is almost like a sort of scientific experiment on, on our optical system. Um, and at the same time framed as a work of art, as a kind of pleasurable aesthetic experience. So it's it's kind of both both beautiful, but also, mm. you know, you are within an experiment, if you like. So art as as an experiment. I, yeah, I on, think so. And I think, Elie, I think there's quite a lot of this in Eliasson's work. He, he did a lot of work on, and he's an artist who thinks very, very deeply about 
about the science of things, I think, you know, I mean, he did, he did pieces that, that worked upon the after image, you know, sort of projecting a shape and then it would disappear and you'd see the after image in its complementary colour, you know, so really playing around with, with, with vision in a, in a kind of toying with our, our perceptions and our vision, if you like, as an artist. Mm -hmm. for the, and, 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 you know, in the way he talks about his work, he's kind of interested in the way that people respond so it's as though he's watching the viewers as though it is like a kind of a laboratory you know you're you're in his you're in his experiment i think mm, so experimenting with the possibilities of human vision and subjective experience it's almost an experiment on consciousness a kind of consciousness yeah, science yes and on that gap between the um you know that, that gap between our, the, the the world as it is physically supposed to be and our, our subjective response to it, which is kind of, in a way you might say it's bridged by our perception. I mean, it's going back to sort of Cartesian uh, model, I suppose, in a way. What do you think, Melena? Do you think art can actually be science? Maybe in some of these, we have something to learn from how subjects are reacting in these kind of environmental settings. Um, so perhaps it is an experiment uh, in, you know, and there's something to be gained by observing people's reactions. Um, I actually wanted to ask Adrian something that he said about this experiment. It was, you know, we claim that this is an aesthetic experience and it's it's giving us some kind of maybe pleasure, but you also said it's very disorienting for people to be in the experiment. So in a sense, it's giving us feelings of discomfort um, and maybe it's just not particularly pleasant after all. And, and I wanted, to ask, you know, how many of these do you think um, ultimately scientifically uh, related experiments that, um, sorry, artworks that are kind of motivated by maybe challenging some concepts that we have, something that is very intuitive to us, um, challenging uh, such assumptions that we make maybe or, or some of our experiences that we take for granted. And whether that goes back to also experiments that have been done in science since a long time ago that you know it oftentimes the experiment brought discomfort i mean we already saw the first painting that showed us that you know it was particularly not particularly pleasant to look at this poor bird um but there's also many other experiments that were in a sense generating feelings of sublime fear fear of nature um so yes i wanted to ask you about this i i think that's i think that's beautifully put Milena, really, the, the way you've sort of explained it, it's, it's kind of, um, it, I think you're absolutely right that the, the, the art is often sort of working at that sort of interplay uh, of, um, of comfort and discomfort, of pleasure and, and sort of putting you on edge, you know, the works that are really, really interesting, they often kind of do, do a bit of both, and whether it's a sublime thing of a kind of feeling a certain terror or a certain awe, or, or whether it's, um, I mean, in, you know, in works that I've made in the past, you know, I, I, I never wanted the viewer to be too comfortable. I always wanted to be a little bit destabilized, but also um, I was, I, I was also working with a kind of aesthetic of pleasure. Um, and I think um, it's really interesting the way, the way that, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really absolutely right. And Joseph Wright, it's clear that, that it's, you know, there's a certain kind of thrill maybe in the kind of the, the, the horrible nature of what we're seeing. The, the dark sublime kind of atmosphere around it um so it's both disturbing kind of mixture of disturbing and pleasure i mean i mean it, it's kind of it's interesting isn't it because i mean it, yeah i mean it's just making me think really that art is often working on that kind of on, on that uh, dialectic between uh, pleasure and, and, and discomfort and and perhaps work that is less interesting is maybe just you know on a kind of very beautiful kind of yeah. contemplative but maybe might might appear somewhat bland certainly shows that the aim is not always to evoke a sense of beauty is it i mean arguably the shah mosque is is beautiful but i'm not sure a bird suffocating in a in an air pump is beautiful sometimes the aim is to evoke these feelings of, of awe or even horror terror disorientation. Mm. I wonder how much of, of these aims as an artist we have um, 
and as, as a scientist, maybe uh, we have, because we have this underlying assumption that nature is very uh, big and very strong, and we are a little bit fearful of not knowing enough about it. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so these kind of experiences that we have, for instance, through this uh, really interesting artwork, kind of generating um, these responses in us because we have this assumption about nature. Somehow it's mysterious. It's a source of fear that nature is this unknowable, huge thing. Well, nature has these, um, I mean, nature has these sort of uh, diametrically kind of contrary aspects, doesn't it, of, of kind of pleasure and beauty and, uh, and terror and horror, which you can even see, you know, you can, you've only got to go to your garden and, and see what's going on in the garden at the sort of small level of, you know, the blackbird pulling the worm out of the lawn or whatever, you know. Um, we see nature, and, and this is kind of personified sometimes in religion, isn't it? In, I mean, I think in Hinduism, isn't it? Uh, Shiva, Kali, um, this sort of dichotomy, you know, between the sort of uh, the, 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 the generation and, and the destruction, you know, I mean, they're both, they're both there in nature, and I suppose we face them in, in, you know, in respect to our own bodies as well, don't we? You know, this kind of embodied experience, this sort of the pleasure in having a body, uh, and the pleasure you can get from a body, and and the the, the kind of terror of the, uh, you know, the dissolution of the body, the end of the body, harm to the body. Yeah, let's mix in a couple of questions from the audience. Then there's one here about would art have the same appeal or meaning? if it was machines creating it. So if it was uh, machines delving into maths and science and constructing art algorithmically. It's a good question. I mean, I think it might. Uh, I think I think it might. And, and I mean, we're, we are, yeah, I think it might well do. And, and, and I, I think, the way we, we've used machines for a very long time in, in making work and, and making things and, and, you know, if people are composing in Photoshop or whatever, I mean, that is a, a complicated kind of... Um... But we think there's always a human artist there, don't we? I suppose this question is alluding to the possibility that in the future or even now, there might not be a human artist at all. It's a very interesting question. Uh, and um, it, it may be right. I mean, I... I I'm a little skeptical about that. I mean, I, th I think it, it maybe we may be, I, I've got a feeling that machines may just do some of the rather banal and stupid things we do uh, rather better and rather quicker. <laughs> but I, I'm not sure it's a huge debate. Yes, can I just say that, I mean, I've been quite interested in this being in Cambridge, of course, there's a, so many colleagues that work on artificial intelligence, and I've seen works of art that are created by artificial intelligence, and I wouldn't, first of all, know that that was the case, they're really sophisticated and really interesting, but honestly, if I had just seen them, not knowing who the uh, creator was, um, I wouldn't have distinguished anything about the reaction, because we are really um, sophisticated, interesting um, works of art. And I think that's a really, really great question because we, when we think we need to have a human creator, we make certain assumptions about, you know, us being special, having some kind of special capacities, but maybe we have sophisticated enough now um, machines and can, you know, we don't directly program them. They can do things on their own, right? They learn and they uh, update and they create mm. algorithms themselves so it's really interesting to think whether we can actually attribute creativity to these machines uh, i think it's really yeah. not straightforward how we answer this do you think it must depend in some way on whether machines can be conscious because i think a lot of the appeal and fascination of art comes from this idea that it's connecting with someone else and their experiences and their point of view on the world they're conveying something to you about a subjective point of view. And so if, if machines in the future also have their own subjective points of view, it's going to be fascinating to see their art and try to understand those points of view. But if they're not conscious and if they're just sort of mimicking what we do when we're producing art, mm -hmm. then it might not be so interesting. 
Indeed. I mean, it, I mean, it raises some interesting fundamental questions about the nature of consciousness and where consciousness is and whether it really is something peculiar to humans, which I, I, I don't think it is personally, or whether even it's whether it's even something peculiar to animals. I mean, some philosophers sort of suggest that it might be. I mean, David Bohm, the quantum physicist, sort of was, was suggesting in a way that consciousness may be something that is just part of the cosmos, part of the universe, part of... Yeah, panpsychism. It's not our topic here, but it is certainly a, a view that's out there. Yeah. So there's another question here um, from the audience. Is there a definition for what art is? Is art just to create an experience? And, and then this leads on to the interesting question, could science and scientific experiments themselves be artworks? It's, it's a good question. Um, and, and the definitions of what art is are, are sort of manifold, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you'll never get two people to agree on a definition of what uh, art is, but, but the, the, but the question of whether a, whether a scientific experiment can itself be an artwork and how that might depend on what we think art is, that really is interesting, isn't it? Personally, I think there's there's some there's enough of a potential overlap that that some scientific experiments might overlap and be kind of in the nature of artworks. Um, if you think of the painting, the Joseph Rice of Derby painting, where that, that public display, yeah, that performance, you know, that performance is is an artwork, isn't it? As well as a, it is an experiment. And, and, and as Milena was was explaining earlier, you know, uh, the, about the sort of public nature of of, of science and, and the and the requirement science has for sort of public demonstration, um, which I thought was a really interesting point. So, shall we move on then to the science art relationship i suppose what uh or rather what art can do for science how considerations of beauty enter into science melena what do you think about that i mean what are scientists really talking about when they say that a theory or an experiment is beautiful mm -hmm. well i want to start by simply noting that we are going to find these aesthetic judgments about scientific products in all sorts of places, right? So we're going to find uh, scientists claiming that phenomena in the world are beautiful. So just by looking at some phenomenon obtaining, we can say that phenomenon is beautiful. So the subject that we study is beautiful. Mm. Rainbows, then, for example. Right. And, you know, well, electric yeah. phenomena, looking at, you know, solar eclipses, whatever. Yeah. Uh, whatever can interest an inquirer, you can find beauty in it. In fossils, molecules, mm. anything we observe under a microscope. Ammonites. And, and then, so this is about the phenomena themselves, right? And this will be a big question that we think about today, whether nature is beautiful and how do we even understand, like, what does it even mean to know that? whether nature is beautiful. The other side is, of course, to think about the products that we produce. We produce theories, as you said, experiments, we produce images, uh, all sorts of a variety of, of products of scientific engagement. And then the question is, what do we mean when we say an experiment or theory is beautiful? What kind of qualities are we looking for? And then there's also another way to think about this question as in the very process of creating something, whether it's a theory or an experiment, we might be involving aesthetic judgments and how we end up justifying those products is yeah. interesting again. So when it comes to theory or, or experiments, you know, sometimes scientists will say that there is no one definition of beauty and philosophers can agree with this, with this claim as well. But if we look into kind of claims that are being made, and I mostly mm. read physicists, sometimes biologists. Yeah. Could you give us an uh, example? Yes, absolutely. We can find that there are some kind of constants, uh, constant values that seem to be lumping together when we talk about beauty. So a lot of the time we'll say Newtonian mechanics is beautiful. Why is that the case? And we'll point, well, it's simple. It has few equations. It can explain a lot of phenomena. So it's unifying. Uh, we think about general relativity. It has symmetry, simplicity, again, unifies concepts. And we think about mm. experiments in the same way as well. So one of the experiments that is oftentimes praised as the most beautiful experiment in biology, the Messelson star experiment on DNA replication. Uh, when scientists are told, you know- you Tell us a bit about what, what that experiment involves and why, why we think of it beautiful. Uh, On the face of it, you think biochemistry, how is that gonna be beautiful? 
Well, this is the thing. When you read about the history of biology and you uh, read historians presenting this experiment, mm -hmm. what we oftentimes are referring to here is that this experiment was really important and gave a really important answer to a question that was bothering the community. So in 1953, we have the discovery of DNA structure, and we know it's a double helix structure, but we don't really know how this structure is replicating, how this molecule replicates. And then there are free contenders available on the market, let's say, um, entertained by the community. And this experiment, the way it was set up, ultimately discredited two of them and mm. confirmed one of them, the semi-conservative called replication. And so when scientists are reflecting on this experiment, well, they will tell us, you know, this was, it gave us a definitive answer to a question. And it was also right. simple. It was a simple setup. Uh, it didn't need to be replicated many times. In fact, it's claimed that it didn't have to be replicated at all. It followed simple steps. And so very often the kind of um, aesthetic values that are related to um, the experiment are not that dissimilar to the ones that we find in in phrasing theories, you know, simplicity, elegance, being able, what we call aptness, being good mm. for the job, you know, giving us an answer or explaining set of phenomena that we're interested in. So, so beauty and science, yeah, it's, it's partly about simplicity in some sense, and partly by the sound of it also about neatness, cleanness this idea that we don't want science to be too messy. So when an experiment cleanly knocks out two hypotheses and leaves one remaining, that makes it more beautiful. Yes, absolutely. And one of our questions that should bother us a lot is whether these values that we just discussed, implicity, symmetry, unity, mm -hmm. scope, um, are uniformly understood by different communities, um, whether they change, whether along the way in the development of science, we do lose some of those or we gain some. Mm. And if we, if that is happening, if aesthetic criteria change, then it becomes- they probably will, won't they? Do you, think, do you think the standards of beauty have changed in science over time? Well, some philosophers think so, and that's why they can challenge the idea that much can be done by this concept of beauty, or at least they think mm. we have to do a lot of work to justify why we base preferences for theories, for instance, on grounds of, the, of such considerations. Um, and so I think you can make the arguments both way, uh, the argument both way. You can say, well, we do observe some, some kind of changes in science. Mm. We see that along the line, we have let go of some uh, kind of aesthetic considerations that we used to consider as part and parcel of the concept of beauty. Yeah, so there was this idea, wasn't there, at one point that action at a distance is very bad, you know, very inelegant, very ugly. And then Newton, Newton's theory viewed through that lens is an ugly theory. Well, it, it depends exactly how you will ultimately measure the simplicity here. Right. If you measure it, um, how how well is this sitting with other pre-existing metaphysical commitments? For instance, maybe it's not simple. If you carry uh, weight on the equations, the parameters that are involved in the theory, maybe you reach a different conclusion. That in itself is a difficult problem. Like, do we have some kind of standardized ways of measuring these values? Um, but I wanted to kind of refer to the work of James McAllister, who is really um, worked on this idea about revolutions in science and he thinks that our aesthetic ideals do change and what we mean by beauty yeah. in different periods will change. So what are his examples then? Is this an example of how the standards of beauty have changed? Yes, I mean a couple of things, right? So while going from circular to elliptical motion in astronomy would be an example where we lost circles and that's important because the circles were considered to be the perfect um, kind of geometrical figure by which you explain the natural world yeah. so there was a lot of resistance to accept so from the geocentric okay. picture of ptolemy and co through to through to kepler and his ellipses exactly and this um McAllister explains this really nicely because he thinks you know there was resistance for the community to accept this theory part of the resistance was based on the fact that the community did not want to update their concept of beauty and we have another uh, phenomenon like like this uh, in the transition to, to quantum mechanics, where we have now phenomena that we can't really visualize. And that's very difficult to accept yeah. the theory. 
And again, I also argue that, you know, this is another example where we have lost something in our aesthetic canon that used to be dominant and now is losing centrality. And then we also gain along the way criteria that are con concerned part and parcel of the concept of beauty, such as symmetry, because symmetry wasn't really uh, a consideration before more recent uh, physical. So do you think beauty is a, is a force for conservatism in science? Is it usually the new that's ugly and the things we've got now that are beautiful? Well, we certainly have some examples here that give us this idea that there is resistance um, to revise the canon with which scientists work. And it's, it's very interesting. There's um, a really fascinating work that came out a couple of years ago by Sabine Holsenfelder. And the book that she wrote was called, um, it's called Lost in Math, How uh, Beauty Leads Physics mm -hmm. Stray. And she develops a really a kind of a few, I think two very important arguments, but her idea is that because oftentimes we develop some kind of comfort about what values seem to have gotten us into a good state in physics, we continue to project them, we continue to expect them. And oftentimes we're very, um, you know, not very sensitive to the fact that sometimes these ideas are not going to lead us to productive ways. And so she argues that sometimes beauty actually is like a bias that is preventing us yeah. from progress, perhaps. And there's something we scientists should train themselves out of, you know, stop seeing everything in terms of beauty. Well, this is the thing. I think if we, I don't think that's the argument she makes, but if we took that line of argument that we, you know, let's dispense of these uh, beauty discussions or these criteria, they're not leading us anywhere. Or um, maybe we started with this claim at the beginning that maybe we're not even saying anything meaningful when we talk about a theory being beautiful. Mm. Uh, maybe we're just- But one view I suppose is we're just reporting our own emotional reactions to it. Yes, I mean, this pertains to the very old fashioned uh, logical positivist tradition that we have in the 1930s about context of discovery and justification, right? So thinking about any ideas, any personal factors that are contributing to how we come up with ideas, how we come up with a theory, um, the process by which we create it, and the personal values that impact on the creation should be irrelevant to the evaluation of yeah. our knowledge. What matters is how is this theory, after we produce it with whatever values we inf infused it with, how is this theory squaring with the evidence? If we have good evidence for it, we should believe it. If we don't, we shouldn't, but we shouldn't really yeah. you know, lump together the epistemic question about knowledge with the psychological question with... Do you really think that's an old-fashioned view? I bet that's still a very widespread view among I scientists. It's widespread in some circles. <laughs> um, yes, no, it's... Not your circles. Well, I think that was definitely the starting point, having been raised in a logical positivist tradition myself. Um, that was the starting point to how I thought about aesthetic considerations initially as well. But I found it very difficult um, to, to accept that view because I think it makes it really difficult understanding, you know, why if, if aesthetic judgments are nothing but just statements about our confidence in how well a theory squares with the evidence, then how can we understand the fact that scientists will oftentimes use those kind of claims to tell us we should trust the theory because of its beauty. And we mm. have those examples on and on again. You can say, well, we're, okay, we're just using these lang this language to be impressionable, to, to kind of motivate us to think about the question, but they really don't mean anything about yeah. beauty statements themselves being about beauty yeah. of the theory. Um, but oftentimes those kind of claims are made in contexts where we don't actually have a theory that's empirically supported. And these kind of judgments are used to convince us to believe the theory. Yeah, is and string theory an example of that? That people often say there's no evidence for or against it. Yes, absolutely. Whether we're thinking about what we call now post-empirical science, or we're thinking about mm. very old-fashioned questions about underdetermination, where we have more than one theory that fits our evidence. Yeah. In those contexts, we seem to be having these statements by scientists that tell us that beauty is giving us good grounds to believe in the theory being true. Mm. So in, in cosmology, for example, in astronomy, where we're testing hypotheses about things we can't see like black holes we, we had a forum event on 
black holes a little while ago uh, in which we talked about post-empirical science. I was pretty disturbed by the whole idea, to be honest. Science without evidence, what are we doing if we're not doing science with evidence? A lot of questions emerge here, whether we should say that these theories are genuinely scientific, whether we'll ever have grounds to believe them on empirical um, foundations, what other non-empirical considerations should be entering in our evaluation of those theories for sure. And I mean, not every proponent of string theory is depending uh, their trust in the theory on aesthetic grounds. It's really not the case, but some some are. And this has always been the case with, with the history of physics. Every time we've had a theory that perhaps has not yet obtained a lot of evidence in its favor, we will see that the proponents of the theory will utilize aesthetic claims. I'm thinking about Paul Dirac and I'm thinking about Heisenberg and Einstein before the expeditions mm. in 1919 to convince us about that inability of general relativity, yeah. right? So Do this you think is this a feature of, I suppose, cutting edge science where we're really not sure which theory is right and we're trying to say which one is worth investing in and which of these is the more plausible, the more worthy of our time? You think it's there perhaps that considerations of beauty, simplicity, etc., really matter? Well, I would say that these considerations enter in any layer of activity, uh, right? Even yeah. in I'm sort of thinking about engineering, you know, if you're an engineer and someone says, build a bridge, well, you may want the bridge to be beautiful, but whether it's beautiful or not is not relevant to the question of whether it will stand up. You, you, re you really need hard evidence that it will stand up and it wouldn't be enough to say, how could such a beautiful bridge possibly collapse? <laughs> you think there's, a, there's a difference in that respect between perhaps the more pure and applied areas of science? I mean, I would just say that I think in every area of, of activity in science, these considerations seems to be getting involved in some way or another. Uh, and I think perhaps one way in which we can think about them is that they give some sort of motivation for scientific activity. I think we can find that claim quite often also in science that, you know, independently of the state of science and independently of what our theory looks like, looking for beauty is actually what kind of is underlying the engagement of the scientist. And I think Poincaré put it really nicely, the French mathematician and physicist and philosopher, um, he was he was arguing that you know beauty among other things the most important thing that it does is actually just give us grounds to do science you know whether nature is beautiful or not is not a question we can actually address but we are motivated by this idea that our intellect is craving the discovery of beauty and we actually are actively searching for it and um, so the search for beauty can have this motivating role for scientists particularly perhaps in fundamental physics. Perhaps, yes, yes. <laughs> it's very commonly made that claim, yes, in, in fundamental physics. Yeah, just mix in some questions from the audience then. I mean, here's one. Is there a single concept of beauty that applies across different realms like art and science? Or is the concept really very different in, in different realms? If it's the latter, then why, why should we talk about objects in the different realms being beautiful at all? What do you think, Adrian? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was looking up the definition of beauty. Um, as it doesn't really have a definition, does it? I, I, mean, it's, think. I mean, it's sort of, um, I mean, the dictionary definition sort of says it's about sort of providing pleasure to the senses. I mean, I, I've always had a, the, the definition I've heard best is something about the the kind of overflowing of the sense, a sense of fullness, fullness of the senses, which, which seems mm. to be to be something to do with beauty. And I and I suppose that that can apply to both, but it obviously has many ramifications, the notion of beauty. And I suppose that could apply both to, to science and, and to and to art in in a way. I think there's a lot going on, isn't there, in the concept of beauty. I would have thought part of it would also be drawing of attention that if something's beautiful you really want to attend to it and in a way appreciate it there's this magnetism yes yes that, that's also true and then there's also the the question of taste and how how we can appreciate things more uh that the more we're kind of exposed to them and sort of we can cultivate a taste for things which is all part of the romantic uh, romantic theory um 
I, I must be really interested, I mean, in, in what we were talking about a moment ago, really, that about the question of aesthetics in in science. And um, I, I guess at the end of the day, I mean, because we are not just logical things, you know, we are embodied creatures, then we, we do carry these kind of sensibilities, um, whether we like it or not, you know. And so in a sense, perhaps things like beauty uh, in science are, are unavoidable, really, uh, because after all, it's, it's humans mm. who are doing it and for, for human reasons. And maybe, maybe a science that was and a science and technology developed solely by machines that weren't human or by another creature entirely would, would be a different kind of science with a different mm. feeling to it. What do you think, Milena? Do you think there's a, a common concept of beauty that is at work in both arts and science? I don't know whether we can make such a claim. And to be honest, I don't even know whether we can make the claim that we have a singular concept of beauty in science. I think one of the interesting questions that is very much work in progress is whether we even have the same concept within the same field. Um, you know, do biologists mean the same thing by beauty as physicists? I mean, that's that's still something we should figure out. I think something we should be working on actively uh, to understand. I think even with the examples we examined today from physics, we see that, well, we have some scope to interpret this notion differently. And the problem with that is if we do have that scope, what is this implying for the application of this concept for our rational um, agreement within whether for instance we're deciding whether to trust a theory and we also haven't touched upon the idea yet that there are some philosophers and some scientists that are convinced that no matter what this concept actually means we have good reasons to trust it to base epistemic significance on our choices based on this concept and maybe you should say a couple of things about how that justification is usually made um you know, you can give an a priori argument in favor of just assuming that nature is beautiful. And mm. this kind of argument goes back to, I mean, people like Paul Dirac, for instance, who had, um, you know, religious upbringings, and they usually, this a priori yeah. argument will go hand in hand with believing in a divine creator who could not have created a complex world. So mm. we have these kind of ideas, but more empiricist arguments, we just look at the track record of our theories, look at the history of science and try to identify every time we've used, every time we've had a successful theory, what were its qualities? And we will be identifying those common qualities we discussed at the beginning, symmetry, elegance, unity. And we will give an argument there that, well, if a new theory comes along, even if we don't have empirical evidence in its favor, if it is actually fitting those ideals that we have, that have been properties of our most successful theories in the past, surely that gives us some kind of confidence to trust the new theory that came about, uh, even before it's supported by the evidence. And that's a really interesting kind of line of argument because it then makes us think about what kind of pool of candidates are we working with here? Uh, you know, if we're thinking about unity and we make a very romantic reflection on the history of science we can say well yes every successful physical theory was unifying maxwell newton einstein they all achieved different levels of unification that was really important for our understanding of the phenomena that they are you know uh, aiming to describe so surely if a new theory comes about that's really unifying we should trust it and well it's not very easy to justify this pool of examples mm. because we can have some pretty serious examples of such theories that are yeah well, plenty of theories that had those qualities as well that turned out to be completely yeah, wrong. exactly that we have basically this alternative form of inference yeah. from you yeah. know beauty to failure um so <laughs> i'm very yeah. interested in where this debate can go looking simply into those kind of empirical ways of justifying um why we trust a theory on yeah, the one yeah. hand we can make a very lovely looking inductive argument that our theories that looked a certain way were successful and it seems on the other hand we can actually look at the history of science and look at failed yeah. history of science always cuts both ways doesn't it gives you as many examples of success as you like and then as many examples of, of, of failure as you like let me say another question from the audience we talked about the relation of beauty to truth whether there really is one 
So it's about the relation of beauty to understanding and insight. And the thought that maybe it, it is scepticism about beauty in science, a result of obsessing too much with truth, perhaps, mm. and not recognizing the relevance of beauty to understanding. I'm, I'm very interested in question. question because uh, it's very much uh, kind of the question that bothers me the most, um, mm. or worries me a lot in my research. And I'm really happy to be able to address this question. Um, I think it's certainly the case that uh, our discussion so far in the last 20, 30 years uh, in the engagement with this um, with this subject has oftentimes really been about the relationship between beauty and truth and whether this is a useful notion, whether we can learn anything about the nature of the world from a beautiful theory. And I think more recently now we're starting to think about other epistemic aims of theories. It's not only truth, it's also gaining understanding. We also are looking at you know, Angela Botochnik, Kate Elgin are looking into how we employ falsehoods in science um, to gain understanding about the world. So we have good grounds to think that oftentimes we can have epistemic aims such as understanding that are being met, even in the absence of strictly speaking truth. Yeah. Um, in the in the full um kind of and where does beauty that. come into that? So science is not all about truth. We also want to understand things. Sometimes we use models that introduce simplifying assumptions idealizing assumptions i suppose sometimes they end up more beautiful as a result of that is there a link between beauty and understanding so so some would say i certainly think so i think um there are many different ways in which you can point to that relationship one of them is to think about um well when we're thinking about a specific problem what ultimately are the explanations that we find more satisfactory, that we find more useful in order to accomplish a particular aim? And those will be simple, elegant and concrete and, and as economical as possible ideas as, as possible. And those economical ideas are really heuristically useful for us to gain understanding of the subject matter and, and further our activities, whatever that is that we want to achieve. And so in that sense, it's kind of practically useful to be working with beautiful hypotheses because they're just easier for us to understand and use. There's really yeah. interesting research in cognitive science that points to that idea, that it observes this phenomenon from the very young age of children and how they reason and how they make inferences. The fact that there is systematic preference for simple unifying hypotheses. Yeah. And that, that everyone loves simplicity, even, even children. Absolutely. And it seems to be part and parcel of how we reason as agents. So yeah. I think there's a lot to be explored about this relationship. Not that truth is not a wonderful concept, of course. Yeah, maybe we obsess too much about truth in these discussions, yeah. It's an interesting hypothesis to think, you know, yeah. for, from the perspective of us as agents with aims that want to achieve things yeah. in the world, how is this concept using, um, utilized in our practices and what is it actually giving us? It's just time for maybe one one more question. Um, do we need to distinguish between apparent and enduring beauty? So can a bridge that's readily prone to collapse be said to have been beautiful? And I suppose in science, the question might be kind of theory that is eventually shown to be false. Should we say it was never really beautiful all along? What do you think, Adrian, about apparent and enduring beauty? Parent versus real, I suppose. It's an interesting question. I was reminded of that um, beautiful bridge in Italy, which which collapsed. Um, but I mean, it didn't collapse because it wasn't, you know, because it was beautiful or because it wasn't beautiful. It was. It was. I just mean, every engineering every bridge engineering. will collapse eventually, right? Um, <laughs> well, there are some some Roman bridges still still around, I think. But yeah, indeed. Um, no, I, I mean, I suppose you could wrap uh, the idea of uh, enduring enduringness. Uh, into the notion of, of beauty, I, I think that that would seem quite an attractive idea. Just very interesting how some scientific ideas are considered beautiful, even once considered false. Bohr model of the atom, for example, perhaps Newtonian mechanics, if you think that's that's strictly false. Yes, and that goes back to this sort of um, the things that you've been talking about. I mean, I, I, what kept coming to my mind as 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 you and Elena were talking was was Occam's razor, really, and just how sort of 
which is about not multiplying ex explanations beyond the yeah, preferring simple theories, preferring the parsimonious. Yes, indeed, and and just how if we didn't have Occam's razor, then I guess we might just be dealing with some extraordinary, unmanageable, chaotic mess that we could never kind of negotiate through. Which is why I often suggested a razor to cut through all the the unnecessary complexities we saw. But that seems quite fundamental mm. to me, really. Hmm. Doesn't it raise the thought that maybe the world is actually a chaotic mess? <laughs> that we're, we're deluding ourselves in thinking simple theories are better. Well, you know, in the Bible, God created the world out of chaos, didn't he? Which is the Greek word for, for gas. I mean, I sort of maybe, maybe they kind of exist in this sort of dialectic. You know. It's a good question to end on, isn't it? It, it? At the end of the day, do you think we have any reason to think that the world is beautiful? That the truth about the world will be beautiful. I mean, personally, I don't know if if, if we have reason to think that. I, I mean, personally, my personal. If I just had to put money on it, yes I or no? Say, I would say yes. But I mean, I. But the other thing is, I mean, if by beauty we we mean something about the kind of you know, as you say, giving attention, the pleasing yeah. of the senses. I mean, I mean, don't don't most of us experience the world as beautiful? If you go out into into the woods or to park or something i mean you, you experience it as beautiful woods um, are beautiful i i absolutely agree with that I'm less sure about the world as a whole what do you think Milena? <laughs> i would say it's no surprise if we end up with beautiful theories because that's what we're trying to achieve it seems to be a name that we're you know involved in this yeah. covering beauty in the world do you think so, the truth is beautiful i would i would just try to see what our best theories tell us a lot about the world and I would accept that if if they tell us the world is very complex I will accept that but I also understand why we're trying to explain things in a unified simple way mm -hmm. thanks I think we're just about out of time but thanks very much to both Milena and Adrian for a fascinating discussion Thank and you. thanks for all of you for your questions my apologies if there are questions we didn't manage to get to and thanks very much to everyone for attending mm -hmm.